This is a Socialist News and Views special interview. I'm Nick Schilling-Ford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. It's been on and again, off again about whether railroad workers will go on strike in the near future. And I wanted to get some clarity on that. And I had a few people that directed me uh, to someone to chat with about that topic. I also attended a panel discussion uh, the other evening, Tuesday evening, in relation to the railroad workers. Some folks had directed me to talk to Fritz, and so I wanted to reach out. Let's go straight to the interview. On Socialist News and Views, we we let folks introduce themselves. Do you just want to tell folks who you are? Well, my name is Fritz Edler. Um, I'm uh, a 40-plus year railroader uh, uh, and uh, based in Washington, D.C. Uh, in the course of that time, I've done most of the job, many of the jobs on the, in the industry. Uh, and like a lot of people from my era, we've had our share of, uh, layoffs and disruptions and reconstructions of the industry and whatnot. I, uh, <clears throat> stopped running trains in 2015, running for Amtrak as a locomotive engineer. Um, and I've been local or regional officer of Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen during that time. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, since that time, 2015, I have devoted uh, most of my energies uh, to defense work and other railroad-related work, uh, mostly through the vehicle of Railroad Workers United which is a cross-craft, industry-wide um, uh, solidarity and advocacy organization for railroaders and, the, and their allies. And um, uh, it's been a, uh, a very important uh, voice where on concerns that really, generally speaking, haven't been brought to the fore by the industry and breaking through some of the obstacles. So... That's been a, uh, a powerful experience, and right now, of course, it's it's uh, a really big deal because we still are facing the prospect of a nationwide freight rail strike, uh, and we can talk about that some more. Yeah, I uh, really appreciate all the work you're doing, and I really appreciate you coming on. You know, I think I think the big thing they mentioned, you know, the last uh, I think I was at that uh, uh, railroader uh, solidarity panel the other night, and. Um, you know, they mentioned that there was another strike in the, I think in the early 90s was the last time there was a strike. You don't, we don't, don't have to go through all of rail history, but we were talking a little bit about my experience in the hospital that, you know, more and more work on fewer and fewer people. You know, is that, that's essentially what, uh, what we've been seeing in the, in the, for railroaders and, uh, you know, what has the trajectory been over the past, you know, decade or couple decades? Well, the, the rail industry, I mean, uh, 
you know, try not to be too much of a industry chauvinist or whatever. The rail industry is pretty unique. Um, it basically has its own labor laws. They, they, the labor laws covering rail workers and airline workers um, uh, are older than those that cover most other union activists. And so, even though there are certainly a lots of similarities and and in some cases, same kinds of things. The, uh, the Railway Labor Act and its requirements go back much further than that. In the course of the time that I worked, uh, there are people who would say that, the, and I would be one of them, that the Railway Labor Act is specifically structured to keep railroaders from being able to exercise what euphemistically called self-help. In other words, uh, a strike action. Um, and, um, uh, I would say that that certainly has been the experience of my lifetime during the time that I've worked on the railroad. There have been, I think, maybe two very short term, very sectoralized, uh, strikes. Uh, and in fact, on the properties that I worked on, there never was actually a picket line set up. Um, now, on the other hand, one of the things that makes rail interesting from the point of view of people who want to talk about labor is that it is one of the relatively few truly nationwide industries. It's not, you know, just this plant there and that plant there or things of that sort, but it's all over the whole country. Mm. And uh, the, the nature of the way that the Labor, Railway Labor Act is, the Railway Labor Act will allow for secondary picketing, which is not allowed otherwise in, in labor law. And secondary picketing offers the possibility of extending the impact of a strike beyond the very specific limits of your particular workplace, something mm -hmm. like that. So, um, uh, you know, many people in the labor movement, many people in the pro progressive radical movement uh, have, you know, they, they know for over a hundred years, our co-thinkers and our ancestors dreamed of the time when there would be a united front on, by all of the different railroad crafts and on all the different railroads. And you, for the most part, it's really not been something that has been accessible. Uh, and the remarkable thing is that in this round, that's really kind of what happened. Uh, there are 13 people will give you different numbers, but part of the problem is the misunderstanding of the fact that there's in some cases a single union that has different components that have their own agreements. Mm. So there are 13 agreements that were involved here for different kinds of crafts. And that's for everything from the clerical workers to the people who do the track work to the people who run the trains, the people who do food service or ushering or, um, transport, uh, all, all the different various, um, the signal system, each of them have their own specific agreements. Mm -hmm. And in this case, all of those groups bargained as one coalition representing the huge bulk of the freight railroads of the whole country, which was an unprecedented thing. Uh, certainly unprecedented in the modern time. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, like I say, that's been the dream of railroaders 
who have seen over the years how they always lose out in a system that is set up where whichever group has the most to lose rushes in and negotiates a, a partial solution to their own problem at the expense of other aspects of work life. And then those things are considered the pattern and generally forced on everybody else. Right. So this is one of the reasons why in this round that didn't happen. Now, the real full history of this round may only be fully understood, you know, in the next years. Uh, but where we are right now is that out of that coalition, some of the people have agreed upon contract language and some of them have not. And uh, exactly what goes on in the smoke-filled rooms in terms of strategy and how that was all worked out is really hard to know. And it involves a tremendous amount of speculation, so I won't do a lot of that. But I will say that uh, even though some people will say, well, six, six of the bargaining units have accepted it, the fact is the overwhelming majority of the workers right. are still undecided. That you know, the numbers of workers represented are still undecided, and uh, the two big chunks of that are the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, my union, and the SMART TD, which is the uh, union that represents, um, well, it, re it also represents engineers and conductors, but mostly conductors. Um, and um, uh, the, so that's a voting process that goes on right now. And uh, I would like to say that uh, Railroad Workers United and other, uh, you know, folks that are uh, really interested in labor solidarity uh, have done a pretty good job in this round of really breaking through the, you know, the general, you know, binary thing where the company says this and the officers of the union say that and nobody else really knows what else is going on. In this case, there's been a pretty robust and public conversation. And interestingly enough, a fair amount of relatively mainstream media uh, in support of the uh, workers' position. And in fact, some of the shippers, uh, you know, business owners, some of the big shippers have actually weighed in mm -hmm. in the matter. And um, so um, uh, I could go on and on about this, but I would just, I should just say this, is that, that the central issues that are still outstanding for railroad workers is not about money. And this is, in fact, not a set of problems that can be fixed by money. Right. And everybody in labor knows that over the course of time that, that there's the general idea that, you know, in one way or another, you can buy your way out of, of any particular uh, labor problem. But in this case, that's a situation which we already know is not going to work. And the reason it's not going to work is because the industry has driven the equivalent of one entire class one railroads employees out of work. They've left the industry. They've been forced out in many cases by a system that's called precision scheduled railroading, versions of which take place on every single railroad. And it's not precision, it's not scheduled, and it's not railroading. It's a way of making money without running trains. And so this is how things were before the pandemic. And 
at the beginning of the pandemic, the process started where they just shut down and drove out more people. Mm. And today, no matter what happens, literally, no matter what happens, there aren't going to be enough trained, skilled railroad workers to do what we need in in the country uh, to move the, the freight. And so there will be consequences for that. But the big problem at the moment is, is that what 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 the railroaders are up against is that they will end up with codified rules, new codified rules about practices that are currently in dispute, like whether you can be punished for being in the hospital, whether you can be punished for uh, not being essentially on you know available on call twenty four seven. That. Those are things that are going on right now, and I'm sure people in the nursing world and other places like that know about this. But, but this goes. This is not currently things that are actually codified in their agreements. And one of the things that's going to happen in this case is rules about those things will become codified contract language, and they are unsustainable. We know this. We've it's established that you cannot long term work. A, a workforce in that way. You can do it in different crises situations. You can do it, and right. it's never best practices, but you can do it. But you can't do it year after year, and that's the, what we're up against right now. And there, uh, so the question is: Are you know accepting of a TA or accepting a enforced imposition of the Presidential Emergency Board? Uh, language, none of those things would actually answer directly the problems that we're talking about because they're not all in the language. But if you accepted them and you put them into place, you would still have exactly the problem that there was a year ago on railroads like the Burlington Northern Santa Fe. And there aren't enough trained, skilled railroad workers. The companies aren't interested in doing what they need to do to hire and get those people in there. And so there's going to be a, a supply chain crisis no matter what. The question is, how bad is it going to be for the people who work on the railroad? Right, and you know, and in the hospitals, you know, they, they really tried to take those emergency measures that were used during the height of the pandemic and then just kind of make those the standard, essentially. And it sounds like, to a certain extent, uh, they've been trying to do similar things in the railroad industry. Do you just want to give a picture? You know, like, we understand what the you know, what the um, boss is making us do more work for the same amount of money looks like in, uh, you know, in the hospitals or what, you know, reusing some of our safety equipment and stuff, what that looks like. Can you just tell in a little more detail what what the railroad situation is, like the working conditions for workers, what they're being expected to, to, to put up with? Well, we could just, just briefly talk about the health part. Uh, you know, certainly in the early days of the pandemic, the carrier's were not willing to do even the most basic kinds of things to protect the health of the workforce. For example, you know, temperature checks or masks or sanitation. You know, they would talk after a while. They would talk about things like, um, uh, you know, whether they had cleaned the equipment that you were going to use or things like that. But in general, they basically treated the entire thing like the whole business was a personal problem. And yet, 
the nature of the work was often the kind of work that put people at most risk. And I personally lost coworkers, mm. coworkers who died, you know, and they, you know, whether I could illustrate for certain that they contracted the, uh, COVID in the early, really, really deadly part uh, on the job, I, I, I don't know, but they certainly could have mm-hmm. because of the way that things were done. Uh, but anyway, so I, uh, as I've told you, I, I have some friends who've worked in the hospitals, and so I know a lot of those conditions, and there's some similarities there. What I'm not clear on, and it's really neither here nor there, is at what point it becomes a situation where it's like, uh, you know, they want to normalize that you're doing the work to people or something like that, but... Right. Um, what happens when that person really does, you know, need to be in the hospital or needs to be off to be with their dying parent or, or you know, whatever, you know. Right. Well, talk about being available. Uh, I can tell you Talk stories. about being available 24-7, too. Like, that's another yeah. big thing, right? Well, so that is, see, one of the things about the railroad work is that, I mean, when I started out in the industry, uh, you generally had people who had regular schedules and then you had people who were on call. They were called in where I, where I was. They were called extra, you know, extra an extra board. So you would call somebody from the extra board to fill in if somebody was on vacation or or if somebody suddenly had to mark off or something like that. Uh, but when I started out, there were three periods of five minutes a day when they could call you, and they and so you had to quote protect unquote during those three five minute periods. And if they didn't call you during that five-minute period, uh, then it was an optional thing. You know, if you got the call, you could go in if you if it was if it worked for you, but you couldn't be penalized for it. They got rid of that pretty quickly after I uh, started in that in that area of work, and and so for for long periods of time, we were specific, and I was on the passenger side uh, on call. Uh, basically 24 seven, uh, in the sense of, you know, I mean, and there were, there were, yeah, statutory time off, uh, after you'd already worked, like you'd have to have a minimum of eight hours off from the last time you worked, but otherwise you could be, you could work back on eight. And I did work back on eight for two months at one point. Um, uh, if you can imagine, you know, how that works or whatever. Um, and they didn't have, uh, and so, so what the railroads claim and they, and they claim it today on the freight side is that time while you're sitting around waiting to get called is time off, Mm. but it's not really time off because you can't, there's all sorts of kinds of things you can't do. And, and and for the freight railroaders, in addition to the time waiting to go to work, there's time, in other words, if you're on a freight pool that, you know, means that you take a train to another city and then you wait for them to transport you back. Well, they can claim that that's time off, but it's not time off and you're not in your home. Right. You know, you can't do, but they use this, you know, disingenuously they represent uh this as being you know so well they say they're you know always on call well 
they, you know, and there's all kinds of, you know, specifics to it. But in fact, what the problem is, is that all workers in the hospitals and on the RNF need discretionary time off. Right. There are just things in this world. I mean, the, the, the employers and the railroads are among the worst. Their position is that all those things are personal problems and you should, you should solve your personal problems. And they've paid you to be on their staff or whatever. And, uh, you know, they, they want what they paid for. Um, right. But the fact is that, that, that this is not just a sort of a human rights thing or something like that. It's way more than that. This would be true for hospital workers. It's true for railroaders. You have, you don't want somebody, you know, giving you your IV or operating your train right. who is either sick or really, really, really needs to be somewhere else Absolutely. because his child is sick or his, or his parent is dying or, or uh, you know, he just he needs to be able to, you know, be at his kid's ball game or something. Or sleep know? deprived. Um, you know, as they ask people to work more and more and more, you know, there's just right. this, incent, you know, this pressure to right. pick up more shifts or you know you're forced to like in the non-union hospital sometimes there's like mandatory you know overtime so so obviously it's something we have to solve collectively which kind of brings me to uh you know some have voted uh to go with the tentative agreement and some have uh or the or the, the what was worked out and some have not what's the do we know the timetable or the what people should be looking for uh, coming yeah. up, what they should be paying attention to, and how, how can they support uh, railroaders? Well, um, there are a few things. Uh, you know, so the immediate answer is that the voting is going on right now with the two big, in you know, the two big uh, uh, bodies. One, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trademen, the other, the Smart TV. And those two unions uh, should have I I I want to say it's November 17 and November 19th. I might not be correct about that, but I, sure. that those are the dates that the voting is over and that they should be tabulating the uh, results. Um, and if, of course, the the TAs are approved, then what will happen is that that uh, basically that they'll ratify the agreements and everybody will go back to work if they are um well and there's one small exception to that which is that the third of the big unions which is the brotherhood of maintenance of way employees have voted down their agreement as have i think the machinist district 19 and those units those units will still be outstanding even if the BLET and the Smart TD were to vote to approve. So there's a bunch of different possible things that could happen. If the two big unions voted down, and that would mean that the overwhelming majority of railroad workers in the country had voted voted against the agreements, then there would be another cooling off period and I, uh, uh, I'm thinking that the first practical time that self-help might happen would be in the middle of December. Okay. Um, but um, now, of course, if they vote.
the possibility that the Congress would step in or that right. the carriers or, or they're, they're the unions and the carriers would agree to have some other kind of meeting or, you know, a variety of things like that. So it's, it, there's a lot of speculation involved, but the answer to your more important question in some ways is what can people do? Right. And one of them, of course, would be uh, to uh, find out where local um, terminals are and stuff uh, so that they can be ready for the pra- uh, possibility that they might want to come out and uh, augment and support a picket line at those locations. Uh, bring the folks uh, a couple of slices of pizza or something or right. that sort of thing. Um, uh, walk the picket line, stand with them. But um, in, in between now and then, there are some other important things. And, and I, I'll start with the big one which is that um, at least we in RWU, and I would say more people all across the industry than ever before, are understanding that the problems that we're dealing with are systemic, and the real solution for them is not going to be in any contract, and it is going to be in public ownership of the railroads. And that uh, so uh, uh, support for public ownership of the railroads by whatever organization you may have uh, would be a real positive thing, not just in this moment, but going forward even into next year. Uh, If we want these problems resolved, we got to take them out of the hands of the robber barons who don't want to run trains. Uh, So there's that. And then there's also that uh, you know, pressure could be put, informational pickets, things like that, could be put on the carriers to bargain in good faith and to um, uh, on the politicians to not intervene and, and impose some, uh, you know, some bad uh, uh, contract on these, these people who are suffering. Railroad, these guys, these men and women that run the trains, uh, they're having a very hard time. And one of the things that people need to think about is that if they maintain a system that's like that, a lot of people, more people will leave and that'll just make everything that much worse. Yep. It's true. I'm sure you have the same problem in the hospital. Oh, that's a huge, huge problem. We had one unit where I think over a number of months, like 20 people left. And some of these were long-time nurses. So, yeah, the hospitals are hemorrhaging people as yep. well. Um, you know, yeah, so so some, if somebody was being proactive, they could be, you know, making it known to any politicians uh, that represent them that they're in strong support of railroaders and that they will be, you know, that people sh- that these people in power should not be trying to put pressure on railroaders to accept a deal that's not... Uh, acceptable, essentially. Well, and not just not acceptable, but not safe. Not, not safe, safe for not the workers and not safe for the communities. Right. Um, so, Completely yeah, unacceptable that, to a functioning true. society. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in a lot of ways, I mean, even though the theater of politics being what they are, you know, there'll you know, be this notion that, you know, Democrats are like this and Republicans are like that. And you know, obviously that's how things plays out sometimes. But the fact of the matter is that both 
Democrat and Republican politicians at the regional and local level know that they need the trains to run and they need them to run safely. Right. Uh, so that that's they can be they can be vulnerable to pressure to make sure that those things are done. Right. What, and you've been, um, you've been answering my questions before I even ask them, so you're keeping me, that's good, you're keeping me on my toes, which is, uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to go too much into the history, I don't know if you know much about it, but they did mention something that was pretty interesting to me on the, on the call the other night about, you know, the previous time when the uh, railroad, there was a previous time when the railroads mm-hmm. were uh, publicly owned or nationalized, I guess. Yeah. Um, do you know, yeah, that, was, that, so that was, was like World War was One or in, something? Um, yeah, in Washington, D.C., in the big Union train station there, our Union station, uh, whenever somebody visits, I always take them to this bronze plaque. There's a bunch of bronze plaques all around the, you know, the, the big terminal there. And, uh, and this one particular one is about the time in the, in the uh, period of World War One when the U.S. took over the operation of the railroads. And um, uh, as a wartime measure, and they did it because everyone could see, even the, you know, the biggest defenders of private enterprise and whatnot, that uh, leaving the matter in the hands of the private profiteers was an obstruction in the way of the country's wartime economy. Um, and so, uh, yes, that's the period that they were talking about and, uh, the railroads all submitted to that. And after the, after it was over, uh, the unions all said, yep, and this is what we want. This is what the country needs. Let's, you know, let's keep it like this. Right. Uh, as, as you all know, as we all know. That didn't happen. They did uh, restore everything back to the way it was before, um, and the, the railroads made real sure that in the succeeding periods of you know World War Two and Korea and whatnot, that they handled the business on the, on a level that kept the government from intervening. But um, uh, it did happen. It was the the Presume not only the the best, but presumably the only way to get done what had to get done in the conflicting system of the basically the uh, the ongoing warfare that the different carriers carried out against each other. Uh, this was a great period of bankruptcies and uh, you know changing hands of ownership and you know railroad failures and whatnot, and um, very much like today in the sense of the uh, machinations and the financialization uh, wars that go on. And um, of course, today, I would say maybe even to a greater extent, our problem is that the railroads, who now are almost completely dominated by hedge funds, uh, have brought in layers of people whose very purpose is to figure out how to make money by not doing transportation. Right. In other words, selling off property and, and 
mothballing locomotives and shutting down hump yards and, you know, selling off various things and uh, closing shops. I remember uh, this has been, I don't know, maybe three years or so ago. At the time, I was organizing the international defense work for the uh, uh, railroaders who were being scapegoated in the Lac-Megantic wreck. Um, and I got a call from an editor of a newspaper um, from a little town in, uh, I think it was Pine Bluff, if I remember correctly, in Arkansas, where there were two towns that were basically going to be destroyed because the Union Pacific had decided to shut down some big uh, locomotive repair shops. Mm-hmm. And this was all part of their PSR situation where, and it wasn't like they didn't need to do locomotive repair anymore. It was just that uh, they could, you know, manipulate these different things in a way that looked good for the next quarter. Right. And all of the practical problems that would result from it would be further down the line, at which point a lot of the managers might even have moved on to other situations and wouldn't be held responsible for what they did. But in the short term, they didn't think that they had any responsibility for these communities that right. um, that they were going to destroy. Well, I think, you know, even people that are activists, anti-capitalists or what have you still sometimes might say to themselves, you know, why would having essentially an economy or a system that doesn't actually function, like, why would that be beneficial even to the bosses, whatever, and... I think what you know, what you made clear, and what people don't consider is the finance capital aspect to that, right? The 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 finance capitalism is kind of what we're uh, absolutely. Dealing with I now. mean, uh, if, you know, it, uh, there are corollaries in all kinds of things. Uh, a corollary in housing would be, you know, if you owned housing and you could either make money by letting people rent it from you or from writing it off on your taxes or something, then you basically create a profit center that has nothing to do with the function that the thing was originally for. Uh, And the same is true on the railroad. They create enough ways in which they can financially strip mine, financially manipulate, uh, and uh, 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 shift the burden of cost. A lot of this... A lot of what goes on is not so much, uh, strictly speaking, financializing as we would normally think of it, as much as it is shifting costs onto others. Right. So one of the big problems in the in the country today is that the railroads run longer and heavier trains, and those trains are unprecedented and are not suited for the infrastructure we have so they can leave them in places where they'll block all of the road crossings which means that no fire and rescue no ambulances no police or anybody else can can cross those locations and uh, the, the infrastructure was set up in such a way that that would never or very rarely have to happen. But now it's a real regular way that they do things. So what they've done is they've shifted their costs. This is my point, is that they've shifted their costs onto others, local communities, things like that. Uh, Another example in the environmental world is 
the resistance that you see from the railroads about getting away from fossil fuels, they'll say, well, the diesel locomotives are cheaper, but they're not really cheaper. They're only, they're artificially cheaper because the railroads don't have to pay the cost of the noise and the wear and tear and the, and the polluting gas. Externalities, I think. Right? They, uh, yes, they have shifted those things. And uh, those things are real costs, but they don't have to pay them. Right. Uh, so the railroads figure this out. They go about their business figuring out how to shift their costs onto. So, you know, if, they, if there is a, a, you know, a cost that could be associated with running a train with somebody who's half asleep because they right. the way they've been scheduled, well, it, well, if, if something bad happens, we'll clean up our stuff. And if it kills people in the local community, well, it was it was worth it for this quarter's uh, bonus. Right. Um, so. Yeah, and you know, um, like you, like you said, these are systemic issues, and also, yeah, there's a lot of costs put onto society as a whole. And so, you know, this is a essentially could potentially be a nationwide uh, situation, and so. Again, it's just really important for, you know, working people, especially people within the labor movement to, like you said, keep an eye on where the uh, local train uh, depots and terminals are uh, so that they're ready if uh, uh, things move forward and uh, there's additional uh, uh, support uh, needed for railroaders. Um, you know, is there, is there anything else you wanted to say? Um before you well, I, I just say that, you know, well, there are a couple of things. One is that I don't know if you heard this last night or uh, it was last night on that call, but they're discussing the fact that 16 years ago, more of the country's freight moved by rail than it does today. And that means that a whole lot more is on the highways, and that's not good for any of us. Right. Um, but uh, I would say this, that... Um, uh, this is a little historical fact that for those in the progressive movement, they they uh, might want to at least uh, you know know that th that this was a factor. Is that one of the greatest trade union leaders and uh, and socialist leaders the country ever produced? A man named Eugene V. Debs, uh, and. Debs went through the process of trying to solve railroad workers' problems in the normal way. Right. In the, the normal being being trade union, you know, trade union activism. Um, and he did remarkable thing. Not just him. He and his co-thinkers and and uh, you know the the people who went through those experiences with him. And I will say that. Being a railroad worker, especially in the 19th century, but it's still true today, is, was, a, a, you know, by definition, you end up, because the kind of work that involves the logistical movement of all kinds of things and people all across the country and the common property that's necessary to do that, it puts people uh necessarily and understanding that social solutions are necessary right. uh, but the in the at the end of the day one of the things that Eugene Debs learned was that just being a good syndicalist is not enough just being a good union member is not enough 
just being a, a and even being a very radical trade union uh, leader is not enough. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why uh, his he and his his coworkers in many many in in their thousands uh, became the founders of the Socialist Party and other organizations that uh, led on to the big explosion of union organizing in this country. Um, so I just, you know, uh, I mean, once again, try not to be too much of an industry chauvinist, but uh, uh, railroad workers need your support and you and your communities will also benefit from railroad workers being able to make a lot of the points that we have to make about safety and what the country needs, what the what our economy needs, uh, and we will all be better off if we solidarize with each other. Yeah, you you've been reading my mind this whole time. I was going to throw Debs in there in that last question, but I didn't want to put too many things in one question. Uh, visited the Debs Museum in Terre Haute, uh, Indiana. It's really cool. Uh, you know, recommend people if they're in Indiana, check that out too. Um, and recommend people, you know, start thinking about the railroaders and how we can support them and how important it is. I really appreciate you talking with me, Fritz. Well, it's been my pleasure. And I wish you and uh, your comrades and, and your coworkers a lot of success with what you're doing in the hospitals and elsewhere. And maybe we will meet on the picket line. We will, I'm sure, see each other at some point. Take care, Fritz. I'll talk to you later. And that's our show. We'll post all relevant links in the show notes, including links to that panel discussion from Tuesday this week. Thanks for listening. Solidarity. This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.